Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World. My name is Mike Delisio, and welcome to the latest episode of The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. Um, over the course of the last few episodes, we've had a chance once again to discuss se- several disease states, different topics that we've had with our clinical services experts. And as I've mentioned a few times at this point, we truly believe that PCCA is built on three separate pillars, one being marketing and how to build your business, which I believe we've had a chance to discuss, not only with Haley and Steve from Magnolia Pharmacy, but also with Aaron. But we've had a chance to really talk about clinical services as well, which in my opinion is the second pillar of what the company has been built on. But last but not least, research and innovation and development from a formulation point of view uh, with the use of new bases and obviously the release of many bases, uh, we've had a chance to change the way that patients have been dosed medication. Today, we are joined, and obviously Seb and I are joined, by none other than Gus Bassani, our Chief Scientific Officer. So welcome to the podcast, Gus. Hey, good to be here, guys. Uh, It's been great because, as I mentioned, you know, we've had a chance to release so many episodes thus far, um, and this is extremely important to give our listeners out there, our, our members specifically, a better understanding of how our research and development team functions at PCCA. More importantly, how do we look at innovation as a whole and what this represents to our membership base? So we have a lot to discuss. I think members that are familiar with with us as a company that have come to International are very familiar with seeing you from stage. Whenever we release a new base, uh, mainly in the last few years, W06, Permeate, Natatroche, Atrevis, the famous PCCA RAM, obviously a piece of equipment that you released in such a dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are familiar with seeing you from stage, but not understanding you here at the PCCA headquarters and what that represents. Um, before we get into anything, Gus, I think it's so important for individuals to have a better understanding of where you came from, how you got here, um, and then we'll have a chance to have a better conversation with you about the future of compounding as well. Awesome. Yeah, no. Um Thanks again for having me, guys. It's uh, it's in- interesting to sit here in this kind of setting and be looking at you with your headphones on and the microphones and all that. So we'll we'll try to keep this lighthearted so uh, we can keep our, our audience entertained a little bit. But um, so so currently I serve as the chief scientific officer for for PCCA. But my I, I got started in the compounding world really in 1990 or so. Um, my father was in the Air Force, and so we lived all over the place. And that he, one of the uh, places that he got stationed was Fairbanks, Alaska. There was Ielson Air Force Base up there, uh, for those people who are curious as to what, what Air Force Base is in, in that area of Alaska. I, I got my start in pharmacy at North Pole Prescription Laboratory on Santa Claus Lane in North Pole, Alaska. So I'm giving... This, I'm is, giving, this is not a fake address. No, like This is actually part deal. of our membership. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I love calling them. Dick Holm and his son now now Leif Holm is up there. I'm giving them a little bit of PR, but uh, that's where I got my start in pharmacy. I went to high school up there, and you know, um, uh, Dick had a real innovative practice and still does. He 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 um, actually had some of Lawson Claysell's 
old, you know, not old chemicals, but uh, Lawson, one of our primary shareholders, sold his store, and, and Dick bought a lot of his supplies. And so um, uh, that was back in the early days of PCCA, and I would, you know, we'd, we would call in to PCCA and literally get Lawson and Dave and um, on the phone, and that, so those are some great memories. But that's where I got my start in pharmacy, and I was there uh, through pharmacy school. I'd go back Christmas and summers uh, to work, uh, work, work in Dick's store. Graduated from from Drake, I you know with my PharmD and uh, um, like many schools of pharmacies these day when you these days when you graduate from with your PharmD they they really do um, uh, push post postgraduate residencies and at that time especially so because the PharmD classes were were small. Uh, Drake University is where I went to school, and they still had a, a dual degree. You could get a BS in pharmacy or a, or a doctor of pharmacy degree. And <clears throat> I ended up um, uh, starting a residency at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And I did the kind of socially unacceptable thing at, uh, very early on in my residency, and I, I, I left. I left the residency early because it, I just realized that um, you know hospital clinical practice really really wasn't my, my thing. I, I enjoyed... The, the extemporaneous compounding environment. I enjoyed the you know, kind of more hands-on problem-solving approaches that, that, that compounding pharmacists would, would uh, undertake to solve patient problems, and I just love that community setting. So I, I, I left early. I went, to, went up to Mason City, Iowa, worked in a community uh, pharmacy up there that was interested in expanding its compounding. Um, my wife, who's also a pharmacist, uh, joined me up there, but she went, went, decided to go to law school, and uh, that took us down to the Kansas City area. Um, ultimately, I ended up working in uh, two different compounding pharmacies in, in Kansas, uh, one in Topeka and one in, and one in Lawrence. Um, and then my wife graduated from, from law school and then moved us to uh, Kansas City area, the, 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 the big city, and I went to work for, eventually, I went to work for a veterinary pharmaceutical company in, in St. Joseph, Missouri. At the time. I don't know if they exist anymore, called Phoenix Scientific. They hired, they were looking for a formulation pharmacist, you know, someone that kind of thought outside the box, and um, traditionally they would hire pharmaceutical chemists for this type of role. Uh, so it, what it did is it exposed me to formal drug development work. So here I was, I've had all this compounding experience and enjoyed the fruits of, of helping patients in, in, in the real world and, and animal patients too. And now I was on the flip side. I was, I was in the formal drug development space uh, going through you know, all the things that, that, that big, big drug companies go through. And that was valuable experience. And it wasn't too long after that that uh, Charlie Armstrong, one of our... our uh, uh, primary shareholders called me up and asked me if I wanted to join um, PCCA as part of their pharmacy consulting department, is what we called it at that time. We now call it clinical services team. And so I was on the phones, uh, just like you, Sebastian, every every single day, taking taking calls and and helping my, my fellow pharmacists around the country solve problems. And it was great. Uh, it was great. I, I, I've always had an enjoyment for for research and development, product development. You know, um, and that that continued to to kind of tug at me. I, I had identified some opportunities here at PCCA. Looking at we we had a we had kind of an ad hoc R and D approach at that time, and and I, I saw an opportunity to really get um, more formalized in our approach and more technical in our approach. Um, 
Um, we, we, we hired Daniel Banoff from, from Brazil not too long after I joined the company. Um, he's now our director of R&D. He and I really spearheaded some reorganization and, and a reapproach to R&D um, during, during that time. And um, eventually, uh, the company asked me to, to, to lead the, the R&D group, uh, to lead the consulting group, uh, to lead the formulations group. I, I didn't talk a whole lot about our formulations team, but we've got a great, form and we're going to do more of that here today. We've got a great, talented formulations team. Um, so, and it just made sense that all three of those, those areas would, 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 would report into one, one, one individual. Uh, eventually, just through growth and, and reorganization, um, joined the strategic management team as, as vice president of R&D consulting and formulations. AJ Day now is our, our director of clinical, or um, he's our, now our vice president of clinical services. Um, heads up the that, that clinical services team. Melissa Rhodes is our director of formulations, and Daniel Banoff is our director of R&D. So, uh, once once we once we we brought up uh, AJ onto the strategic management team, I, I became chief scientific officer, and uh, AJ still reports into me. But that's a real kind of went a little bit too long, probably. For no, you, it's but, cool. Yeah. I, I think um, a lot of people don't realize. I think uh, many members know who AJ is. Obviously, he's very present. He's very involved, uh, both with advocacy and public affairs, and, and also on the back end when it does come up to clinical services. And then you have Daniel, who, if you've ever had a conversation with Daniel, it'll be memorable, and you'll yeah. probably never forget who he is. Oh, he's great. And yeah. in terms of timeline, why it's important and why I think it's important for our audience, whether, whether they're a PCCA member or not, you probably went back 15 years to when Daniel and Fabiana joined the company um, and started heading up our research and development team. Just for the sake of, and maybe I'm gonna put you on the spot, how many proprietary bases did we have prior to Daniel joining the team? Uh, I would guess less than half of what we have now. Uh, we, we, had a, we had a grouping, maybe 20 or so at that time is what, is what I would guess. Yeah, and we, we're probably almost tripled that. Mm -hmm. um, safe to say that the amount that we've added over the last 15 years, uh, we try to make a difference from a year to year basis. Some years we come up with three, some years we might come up with more or less. It, it's, it really yeah. is kind of walk us through how you work with Daniel, how you determine a need, a want, um, something within the marketplace that would dictate the need for a new base for delivery, because that's truly what this is about. It's maybe not a business decision. It's it's really factored down to the patient and down to the mm -hmm. physician. Yeah, it's a multifactorial sort of process um, on how we go through that whole R&D development cycle or, or, or process. Um, obviously, our, our members' input you know, uh, the marketplace telling us their needs, making us aware of needs is, is, is a big part of what goes into developing new products. You have to listen to the marketplace. But our position in the marketplace also gives us somewhat of a luxury of, of seeing things that our customers may not necessarily see. Not because they're not, not because they're incapable of seeing it, it's just that they're busy in their own practices. And, and we, we take 350 to 500 calls every single day through our, our clinical services team. 
and we we can discern patterns and needs and and uh, that's not a that's not a perspective that that our, our our customers have and so that that's a piece of the puzzle as well just just paying attention kind of reading the reading the tea leaves if you will and and there's intuition you know we we have conversations we have strategy meetings all the time and you know you, you literally throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks um, you know we've got a bunch of things on a whiteboard and and um, uh, you know, some things come to fruition relatively quickly. Some things take years because that's just how long it takes. Uh, and the the other the other piece of this is um, I didn't I didn't I didn't talk about this in the intro, but uh, I've I've been fortunate enough to to serve for the last almost ten years on the USP Compounding Expert Committee, and um, you know that's that's a, that's a big level of effort for me personally as a, as a volunteer to be a part of that committee, but it's been incredibly meaningful uh, in that uh, it, does, it does provide some degree of big picture thinking in terms of the standards uh, that are, that are uh, being set for, for the industry. And um, that, that's very helpful. Um, one, to just be able to contribute to that, and, but also to, to help better understand where maybe things are going you know, what, what, what things may look at, look like in three or five years. Right. So, well, that, but, that, but, that's yeah. one of the, our bases that we just developed. The W of six is a perfect example. We yeah. See. Yeah. A perfect example. It just, it just became apparent that, um, you know, as the, as the USP draft came out, uh, we all saw that there was a renewed emphasis in 795 on water activity. And that's, that was a new concept for the marketplace. It's, it's not, it wasn't a new concept in general because other industries were very familiar with, with water, con or not water, not water content, but water activity rather, uh, especially the food industry and the, and the cosmetic industry when it came to preservation. Um, but it was new to, new, new to a lot of people within our, within our industry. And so it, it um, once the draft came out and um, we, we began to sense that, uh, that having having low water activity options in the marketplace were, were going to be important because it, it would allow for better default dating. And, and quite frankly, it, it, it also is, is safer from a microbiologic perspective. You don't, you don't have the, the risk of um, inadequate preservation. In, an, in a low water activity formula. So those, those are just some examples. And, and listen, Daniel and I have a great time. <clears throat> you know, if you, if you know Daniel, if you've ever met him, he's, he's a high-spirited guy. Um, you know, most people think I'm a pretty serious guy, but I can, I can be a little bit of a goofball too. And so we, 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 we have some fun um, um, in, our, in our kind of brainstorming sessions. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's product development is, is a challenge. You, you, you do have to get used to failure. And be okay with it. Sometimes you just you think you got you're on to something great, and and maybe it turns out to not be so great, uh, and that and that's okay. You know that that's part of the process. Well, walk us through like, and, and we don't want to give away anything in a in a in a positive or negative sense, but give me an example of something that we've worked on for a few years and maybe experienced some failures. And I, I there's a story that stands out to me with an Ica mixer and a whole bag of salt that I would love for you to share. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was during the development of uh, Lipoderm, and um, you know, process in making formulations can be as important as the ingredients 
themselves. I mean, so in the, in the case of Lipoderm, we went through, I don't even know how many different pilot batches uh, to try to get the, the, uh, the end product that we were looking for. So this speaks to a couple things. One is scale up. I mean, just to kind of teach a little bit here, you know, it, it, it's one thing to make a preparation in a beaker, 100 grams of it on, you know, on the bench. But then when you go to make 100 kilos, 200 kilos, 1,000 kilos of something, very different dynamics and things that you need to think about. And uh, that, was, that was the case where we, were, we had a great bench formula that we really liked and we had, knew the ingredients real well. And, um, but boy, scaling up was, was, was a challenge for us. So, so we, we oversheared it essentially, I think, and I, if my memory's right, and we ended up in, this, in these, one of our big ICA vessels and if you've ever seen, if you've ever been on a tour at PCCA, you've seen these big, these big, um, these big vessels, and these are, um, you know, these are these are closed vessels. Everything's kind of circulated within the system, so it it went almost solid on us. You know, it was it was um, like this big gelatinous mass <laughs> that was stuck in the machine, and uh, Daniel and I thought for sure we were going to lose our jobs. That we just you know, we just destroyed a a million dollar machine, and so. Um, and then we just kind of scratched our heads, and Daniel's like, hey, I know, you know, we're going to add a bunch of sodium chloride to this because salts will break down, you know, viscosity within emulsion systems and whatnot. So we just, I think we went into the warehouse and depleted the entire supply of sodium chloride <laughs> <laughs> and poured it in there, and, and it, it worked. It broke it down, and we were able to pump that stuff out. But, yeah, yeah we have some, there's, some, there's, there's always failures in, in any process. I, I feel like I'm coming back to something as well, and... I may have touched on it earlier when I was discussing Daniel and him coming on board, the amount of formulations that we've increased over the years, and not only formulations, but the products that help change dosage forms and that focus on so many different disease states. You know, even just thinking off the top of my head, um, the impacts that we've made in the wound care space, um, scars, pain, HRT, both for men and for women in different delivery systems that, that we've designed, that we've released over the last few years, the veterinary applications. And Seb touched on this as well, the anhydrous application and water activity, what it means for both topical and cosmeceutical preparations as well as potentially transdermal. And then we think about all the different oral administration forms from... Um, a base designed for solutions and suspensions to trochees. And I can go on and on, Gus. And I know you're extremely humble. And you probably won't admit it, but I'm going to try to drive it out of you. Um, <laughs> our membership base has increased over those 15 years. We've seen so many people come on board. Um, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there are individuals who have joined PCCA because indirectly the innovation, the R&D, and the investments that we've made on the back end because they realize that these bases can have a difference on their final preparations. Um, I'm not going to say that we're, we've hit a wall. There are so many more opportunities that we don't even know ourselves. And we're looking forward to the future, not understanding how many more bases we're going to add to our repertoire, add to the availability to our PCCA membership so they can change patient lives. I always try to bring every conversation back to the, to the triad. And what do you think the research and development team here at PCCA with both Daniel and Fabiana and others that have such a tremendous impact 
on our products, what difference do you think they've made in the lives of patients and in the lives of physicians and in how they treat patients? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great, great question. And, um, humbling to, to think about the, 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 the numbers of people that we've touched over the years that our members have touched through, through the products that, that we've created. I, I, I think, um, you know, we're very fortunate to have a, a fantastic R and D team, a fantastic formulations team and look a very experienced, seriously big breadth of experience on, on the clinical services side all of that put together, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm particularly proud of, of all of the all of the all the pieces of technology that we've put out there, because because Mike, what you you said something here that that triggered a, a thought, and that is, you know, we we know medications only work if they get to the site of action, and sometimes getting those 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 needed. Um, pharmacologic agents to to where they're supposed to work can be a challenge, or they're not there long enough. I'm thinking of, say, for instance, mucolox. Well, you know, th this 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 was derived out of the the knowledge that all of the different magic mouthwash formulas out there were, yeah, you know, they they provided some efficacy, but they they just didn't stick around on that mucosal surface long enough. They didn't provide the film forming that, that patients were, were needing. And that led to the innovation around this polymer system with great mucoadherent properties for, for better formulations to target things like mucositis. Um, and, and by the way, we actually, I have two clinical trials going on right now with that particular base. One with a Harvard affiliated institution in Brigham and Women's looking at the ability or the impact rather of mucolox with dexamethasone versus standard dexamethasone solution for the treatment of oral lichen planus. That, that, that relationships, you know, came out of, a. a a relationship that we had with one of our members in the area that was working with that particular institution, and uh, really drove that 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 to happen. The other the other study that we've got going on is at um, Levine Cancer Institute in in North Carolina, and they they have their own particular ma magic mouthwash, if you will, an oral mucositis formulation that they're now putting it into to mucolox to compare which one of the, their, their, their traditional one or the one with mucolox, um, which one has better efficacy. So it, it and, and that's, that's, that's tremendous. And it's getting, rec that means that these, these, these pieces of technology are getting recognized. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know, Mike. I mean, this, this, we've, we've touched, I'm, I'm guessing probably millions of, of people in, in a positive way. Um, look, we, we're, we're in a, we're in a, very different time today than we were 20 years ago as, as an industry. Um, we need to be reminded as professionals that, you know, we don't, I've, a colleague of, of mine says, you know, we're not, we're not making paper clips, we're making medicine. We're making life-saving medicine. And so the, the, the expectations being put on us as, as pharmacy professionals, as makers of this medicine, are higher than they were before. But let us not be deterred from continuing the good work. Uh, it, it, we do have to step up our game. We at PCCA within our technical services area, meaning clinical services, meaning formulation development and uh, R&D, 
We understand those pressures, and we're investing in people and technology and other resources to make sure that we stay ahead of the game, to stay on the cutting edge. Um, that, that actually is an interesting piece because um, since I've been here, and this is my part in kind of pushing on the formulations team and some of my colleagues, um, how many patents are we roughly seeing in the last yeah. uh, 10 years now with respect to our innovative products, with our, with our bases, with some of the technology that we're developing? Do we have other things like USP monographs? I'm leading you because I want you to talk about these things and, and tell, tell our listeners where the innovation is actually coming to fruition and the utilization of that innovation can, like you said, it affects patients in the millions. Yeah. So patents. You yeah. I, in terms of uh, numbers of patents, I'll probably get the numbers. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the exact rough. number. This is rough. not have yeah. to be exact. Um, you know, issued patents, we've got roughly 24, 25 issued patents, which is, which is great. Uh, some of some of those are on the technologies that we use in the base products themselves. Some of them are on particular formulations that were unique or innovative. Just you know, putting some picket fences around the technology and protecting it for our marketplace. Um, we have many, many, many more pending, and it takes two, three years sometimes to get through the patent prosecution process. So, it, it, it's um, that's the just the effort on that alone is, is, is if, if any of the in the audience listening has ever tried to go through that patent process, they understand that it can be very costly. It can be take very time consuming each and every patent. So, um, but it's good, you know, it, it, it's good for the industry and, and uh, we need to, we need to keep working on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's going to lead into the next one. We have Dr. Maria Carvello, who's uh, with us helping publish PCCA science, literature, uh, white papers, uh, Dr. Song. Can you talk, elaborate with, with respect to- Two very to talented theory? individuals. Maria is, is a PhD in compounding, which is, uh, I'm not aware of one of those in the world. She, she lives in Europe and um, she modeled her career after Dr. Lloyd Allen. Uh, many of us in the industry know Lloyd. He's probably the most published guy in, in our in our profession, and and served almost well, over 35 years at the on the USB committees, and so uh, Maria was a um, a big big fan of Lloyd, and and so she sought to get her her PhD, and she was successful and a very knowledgeable um, lady, and she's uh, she's 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 the head of our PCCA science world, and that and they're tasked with taking all of this great stuff that sometimes we who are Kind of boots on the ground working on all the technology we forget to to tout ourselves or to get the word out and so she she's she seeks publishing opportunities and that's just not good for pcca it's also good for it's good for the industry um, because there's so much innovation that happens in our world and um yeah so she's great dr song came over from md anderson and she she did cellular based research in the oncology world. So she would take different cancer cell lines and look at their responsiveness to various chemotherapies and inflammatory markers and all this and things that I don't even know how she does, but she does it. You know, we, 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 we put together a, a biologics lab and, and uh, so she's, she's, she literally takes different types of cell lines, you know, like psoriatic cell lines and, and um, looks at f different formulations on and their impact on inflammatory mediators, just to give you an example. 
really, really cool stuff. Stuff that I, I don't think we, we even dreamt that would be possible, you know, 20 years ago in the world of compounding. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is one of the luxuries that we have as a company that maybe our, our members don't have because, again, they're, they're so busy taking care of patients. And, but we understand at, at, a, at a high level there's, there are political pressures, there's regulatory pressures to generate data to validate that what we do is appropriate, that is um, you know, legitimate, that is valid, and data speaks clearer than anything, you know? We, we're okay. emotional about it. We, we know, you know, as professionals who've ever cared for patients, I mean, we, we know we're doing good stuff. But, but having the, the, the scientific data that will stand up to the rigor that regulatory agencies and academic experts demand is, is another story. And we, so that's, that's, we're really focused on, you know, on, on doing more of that work in the best interest of, of, our, of our customers' patients and, and their practices. Data, the, the entire world that you just mentioned in terms of validation and everything else that we do to give credibility and clout to compounding pharmacists, I feel like your whole world, Gus, is defined by numbers. Um, and, and that's probably internally as well to other employees at PCCA. There's always a, a couple of big things that stand to mind. You know, 38, 39 years plus experience as a company in the formulation world, assisting pharmacists with compounded medication, 65 plus proprietary bases, 9,600 plus formulas. Yeah. So that was all last year. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was all last week, actually, yeah, yeah. it feels like. Could, could you think of any better way to start, like you mentioned data um, and, and what this represents to our members, what this represents to the market as a whole? Um, let's talk about the 9,600 formulations because th this is a number that gets thrown around a lot. And part of, I guess you can say, even experienced to educate our internal employees is that these formulations are designed, they're created, they're validated. I cannot emphasize that word more because there are other individuals and people within our, our space that create formulations, do not go back, revise, and look at the data um, anymore. And the amount of effort that we put into validation and to ensure that if, if a revision is required, we have also data and evidence to show that if there is an issue with the formulation, we're going to make the investment to go back and take a look at it again. And I'm not giving you the most scientific explanation of what this means, but maybe I'll, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> Yeah, that you you brought up some really good points. One is is that that's a living, breathing database. Um, formulas sometimes come and go, you know, as as times change, as standards change. Uh, they they certainly are revised on a regular basis. That's you know we do we do publish those revisions um, in the apothegram and and um, you know and and when you go to search formulas, you can you can search the the newest. 50 or 100 or I can't remember exactly the number, but sometimes those newest are, are, are older formulas that have been revised for, for whatever reason. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, that number that's been over 10,000 at, at one time and it's, it's, you know, it shrinks and it goes back, goes back up. But that's, that's th like you said, it's 38 years 
of institutional knowledge. Those formulas are, are indicative of needs in the marketplace that are unmet by commercially available options. And, um, and uh, you know, it just, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. You know, that's not even, you know, you didn't even bring up the, 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 the types of testing that we, that we do beyond just the basic bench top testing. I know, know. I'm, it, I'm an it, expert in testing. Yeah. So I, I, re, I yeah. really wanted you to, to you, dive you into want me that. To dive into that. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think the industry is probably well aware now of, of the need to better substantiate beyond use dates, utilizing stability indicating, uh, analytical methodology. Yeah. And we had Ross on so, for two episodes and so they, he probably drilled that in people's heads. He for did. Sure. And, and I think the number one recommendation that I have when people uh, talk about the podcast, whether a member is here, they see me, they, they might interact or they might ask us more about the podcast and what to expect. And if I can tell that they're somewhat analytical and they want to know more about specifics when it comes to stability indicating assay and asking us more questions about beyond use dating, I'll tell people to go back and listen to those two episodes again. It was, mm -hmm. as Sebastian made, alluded to in those episodes, it was really drinking from a fire hose. Um, I want to leave it up to you guys to reinforce maybe in a few sentences or give you a few minutes to talk about the importance once again of the quality of, of testing and the quality of information that we, we have to back up beyond use dating. Yeah. The, the key to any beyond use state study is the methods and, um, state boards, are becoming much more cognizant of what that means. I think early early on, maybe some of the state board inspectors didn't truly understand what stability indicating methodology really meant. Um, that 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 is changing, and so it's just vitally important that um, you know, like in our in the case of our formula plus formulations, that a we're going to continue to do more of those uh, to support. Um, uh, those those formulas in terms of BUD, but I don't I don't want to I don't want to I don't want this to get lost on the audience that it's not just about the BUD that that's the core reason why you do the testing is because we are making medication that a family member um, that a son or a daughter will take, and by golly we need to make sure that the medicine that they are receiving is what it's supposed to be. It has the strength and the purity and the, and the stability that, that it's supposed to have. And that's why we, ultimately, that's the reason why we do the testing. Yes, there are certainly market pressures to uh, substantiate those BUDs with appropriate data so that our customers who are using that information are, are in a better position from a regulatory perspective. So if the state board inspector comes in or the FDA comes in, and says, well, how did you substantiate this BUD? Well, uh, it's a formula plus formula that I got from from PCCA. Here's the data. If they, you know, and 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 so we've we're we're, we're proud of that data, and we, and we've gone beyond just the physical chemical testing. We recognize that, well, guess what? If it's a water containing system, and it's preserved, the next question is is how how do you know that the preservative is working? What, what, you know, is there a possibility that something in the formulation interfered with the activity of the preservative and therefore now there's a microbial risk that didn't exist before? So what did we do? We did USP 51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing on all aqueous preparations within, within the Formula Plus family. Big lift. 
big oh, lift. It's huge. Um, you know, that, and then there's the container closures and, and everything else that goes along. That. So we're just, we're continually building a, a body of evidence and data that, that can be leveraged. This is, this is, this is the value. This is the value add here. This is why people pay the money to, to have access to this type of information because a, it takes a lot to, to accomplish this. Um, and it, and it's tremendously valuable to have that, not just to be able to call up Sebastian when you're in a bond. I have some crazy ideas, Yeah, but, but I rely on, keep going. Cause this is, this is the yeah. part I rely on every other part of the scientific team under your purview, which then goes and makes the formula, tests the formula, sure it checks out having the input from everyone from Melanie and Suki to yeah. Melissa to Courtney and Stacy. It's. Yeah, great and, idea to, and, to fruition. Yeah, is and huge. not and not every we know that not every formula in that ninety six hundred database is a formula plus that's undergone the fully method validated stability indicating assay USP fifty one yada yada yada. Why? Because we we would go out of business pretty quick. You know, it's just it's just a lot of money to do those studies. So we have to be strategic in which ones we choose. And we do have a pipeline, and we have members suggest all the time, hey, it'd be really valuable if you were to study this, and we put it on the list, and we and we do get to it. And you know, and of course, we'll assign USP default dates when we don't have data to to go beyond that. Um, so it. it uh, I don't, you know, did I answer that question okay? Are you getting at anything deeper than that? No, I think it's awesome. I, I, I think the emphasis to me, uh, and putting myself in the shoes of a pharmacist or technician, somebody working in a lab, I want to hear that there is data, that there's validation, that there's a means to, to vet a formula, giving me the confidence that it works. And that's a question that I would ask anybody is, you know, it's great to have a formulation. It's great to have potentially references on that formulation, but has anybody made this? Has anyone looked at it? Yeah. Um, especially using quality ingredients, uh, because I think that's where, and, and call anybody unbiased, it, it's just the reality is, that's a logical question that if I'm making a medication for a family member, and you mentioned that as well, do I know that this formulation will stand up? that there is not potential of breakdown, and more importantly, is it efficacious? So I think you hit it, Gus, and, and I think that's... I wasn't leading you in any potential answer. I really wanted your stance on uh, formulation analysis at, at the BUD level and the investment that, that we make um, in looking at Formula Plus to validate formulations for 180 days. I think that's really, really what it boils down to. Yeah, and it's not, it's not always possible or feasible in, in a patient care setting to, to do that level of testing before you ever make a preparation. You know, mm -hmm. let, let's be real. There are, there are things that pop up in patient care where you've got to make some, some, some judgment calls, you know, as a professional in order to treat a patient. But that doesn't mean that you lose discernment skills. And, and, and even in a busy pharmacy environment where you're, you're, you need to treat a patient and, um, it's, it's, it's good to have a backbone of, uh, of, of thought, of, of evidence, of, um, you know, some, some basis behind what, why you're doing what you're doing. And I think, I think, you know, there was a time period in, in my professional career where I was outside of the, the bounds of, of PCCA. I wasn't in the network, you know, I wasn't, um, 
Um, and I never felt more adrift at sea <laughs> during that time. I, I still recall it. And uh, this was a pharmacy that in, in Iowa that I was getting helping to get more into compounding. And um, it, at that time, wasn't a, uh, a PCCA member. And, in, and he actually ended up selling to uh, uh, Mercy Health System at the time. And so it, uh, that kind of fell apart. But there was, I just remember there were so many instances where, gosh, I wish I was a, could, could pick up the phone and just have some conversations with some knowledgeable people about this. And um, I think, Sebastian, I'm looking at you here. <laughs> you know, that, that, that your team over there, your, your fellow colleagues in clinical services, that's a ah, tremendous value there. phenomenal. And, 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 or even being able to you, you talk to people in the formulations world to, you know, like I'm thinking Suki and he's a PhD in pharmaceutics to run something by that team. Um, to say, gosh, is this, is this a good idea? Can this be done? And, and with the volume of calls that we get every single day, the odds are that team's probably heard it somewhere before. And uh, so there's, there's value in that. Oh, yeah, you know, this, is, this has popped up before. Here's, here's, here's what we know. Um, so, so that pharmacist that's out there trying to make some, some decisions about what they can, what can, they can do for a patient, um, having that that team behind you is important. But what I was getting at is that sometimes it, you, you don't have all of those, those studies, um, but you still need some degree of scientific judgment that goes into um, you know, preparing that preparation. And that's where having the level of institutional knowledge that we have on, the, on this team behind you and that you're paying for is, 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 is critical um, and valuable. Yeah, you uh, educated our audience on your voluntary involvement with the USP compounding guideline committee. Uh, December twenty nineteen is obviously a, a big, a big. I can, you can say a punctuation point in the calendar because everybody's looking at seven ninety five revisions, seven ninety seven revisions in USP eight hundred, and what that represents to our entire market. Yeah. It, it, this is a, a really big impact on, on everybody and probably the number one question that we even get in the sales team. And I would say this is a, an appropriate time to, to make mention that we have a complete brand new microsite designed on PCCARX.com that helps educate and walk you through what USP 800 looks like. But before even I discuss that, Gus, let's talk about 2020 and um, where our market is headed. And this is not relevant to PCCA at all? Well, it is relevant, but I'm asking you the question on behalf of somebody who is part of a USP compounding guideline committee. What do people need to look at moving forward? What are the concerns, the challenges, and how can they stay ahead of the curve? Well, um, for one, when the chapters come out, um, I believe USP has stated that they're going to come out next month in June beginning of June, the final, the final versions of 797 and 795, um, you know, dive into them, actually read the chapters. <laughs> um, don't just let someone else do it, but, but, but truly dive into it and, and, and read it. And anywhere it says must, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're moving forward with, with addressing those, those issues. Um, you know, eight, 800, same, same thing. They're all going to be official as of December uh, 2019. 
So if, if, if you haven't already begun to, you know, to, to work on your people, your processes, and, and, and your facilities uh, to, to um, become in compliance, then, you know, I mean, I'm talking 800 here, but, but when the new chapters come out, you know, we need to take a critical eye at that and, and start, uh, start addressing it. It would be one, one big piece of advice. <laughs> Don't wait till December to say, oh, gosh, you know. Um, yeah, December first is a little late to be addressing these. I think you need little, to start migrating in that yeah, direction now. A, a little, a little late. Yeah, and listen, I, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that when when you have these types of standards changes, there's there's tremendous um, pressure on 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 the members out there, the customers out there that um, you know they've got to invest. In their facilities, they've got to invest in their processes and people, and um, you know that can be financially stressful sometimes. And um, but uh, there there are rewards for for those that 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 do invest, and because they're the ones that that remain standing when it's all yep. said and done. And 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 quite frankly, the 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 quality piece here, um, I've we've seen some amazing facilities over the last few years people who have invested dollars into to totally revamping their operations and you know they're putting in the negative pressure rooms and the you know the new 797 rooms and and all that i mean they it, i've just been amazed at uh, um, the, the the quality of some of these places that that i've visited and you know what who also appreciates that the prescribers mm -hmm. uh, the patients and and quite frankly, the regulators too. When they when they come in, um, this is what they want to see. And it's you know it's not um, it's not such a bad thing. I, I I take it back to if my mom or my wife or my kids were were needing a compounded medication, and I'm looking at you, Mike and Sebastian. But I'm guessing there are some some places that you have in mind that you'd probably send them, and probably send them over another place because that place is invested in their infrastructure and you trust that the, the the quality of the preparations that are coming out i mean let's just get real about it i mean I, I i think about that sometimes where would i send my if i needed a compound or my daughter needed a compound where am i going to go and i've got i've got people in my mind of where i'm going to go because i've been there i've seen it and i'm like that's the environment that i want my compounded prescriptions made in so don't be afraid of of, of these standards changes embrace them Make the investment because it's it's gonna it's gonna reap reap rewards. Compounding's not gonna go away. I know there's some doomsdayers out there saying the FDA is gonna shut us down, and you know, listen, I I know people who've been in, who've been inspected by the FDA five, six, seven times. They're still in operation. Okay, it's not fun, and I'm not I'm not saying that that's that's a good thing for them to go through that kind of pain. But the point is, is that I think there's there's a in, in my interactions with the agency, they recognize the need for compounding. The, the people that I've interacted with, um, they do, they are legitimately concerned about public health. And, um, you know, they don't have the perspective of being a patient care clinician. And so, you know, they, they, they you know, they, there's some lost things that are lost in translation there. But ultimately, they want safe medicines. So as an industry, let's make safe medicines. Let's, let's do what we need to do. Um, we as a company are going to invest as well, along with you. We're going to invest in, you know, 
state-of-the-art products. We're going to invest in, in making our teams better and better, giving them the tools to serve our patients, their patients, better and better, um, and, um, you know, and, and, and generating the data that's going to be meaningful to validate what we already know is so important and valid in the marketplace, and that's, that's, that's compounding. Man, there's so much. There's so much that extemporaneous, bespoke, whatever you want to call it, formulations can do. Personalized medicines coming. Uh, you know, pharma has their own version of, of an answer there, and that's, you know, these these high-priced biologics that that target specific genomic anomalies, and you know, cost a hundred thousand dollars a year to to. Um, that, hey, that I'm not I'm not I'm not being down on that. There's a role for that, but I also understand that as we become more educated on pharmacogenomics and then that science begins to emerge if we can if we can also in parallel get our technologies and our data and our systems to a point where um, you know true personalized medicine compounding is a part of that but you know we, we need to what, what we're focused in on in, in, in the scientific world within PCCA is is just up in the ante. How do you know, we're gonna we're gonna get that level of science and data to a point where um, you know we have the best chance of making sure that that your practices are around for not just five years but fifty years, right? And that leads us into the next comment. You you said the agency. You've been interacting with the FDA. You've been in, uh, involved with the National Academy of science, uh, engineering, and math. Just yesterday. And uh, this is part of the regulatory. And, and so like, I, I'm laughing because I'm now thinking like, <laughs> sorry, math. It's the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Medicine. Yeah, medicine. Yeah, yeah. No, no, math. Yeah. You got to be good with pharmacy math. <laughs> you do have it's to be tough. good at math. Um, but you're, you're almost turning into like a, you're, you're a chief scientific officer, but you're also a major regulatory interface. And you're becoming a, a well-known, respected uh, expert in the field of compounding at this point within those regulatory and, and uh, scientific agencies. And so you said yesterday you were involved. What other, expand, talk about that, talk about your FDA yeah, discussions, I, I, talk about you know, I won't, I won't belabor it too much, but, but essentially uh, in, case, in case the audience isn't aware, the FDA commissioned two studies, one on the ut clinical utility of bi bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and the other one on, on topical pain, uh, topical pain preparations. And the, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, uh, I believe they were established under Abraham Lincoln. It's, it's a, um, kind of an impressive organization. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the intricacies of its history, but uh, essentially they, 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 they put together these panels of you know, scientific experts. Um, I'm not sure how they choose, who they choose, but Anyway, they, they, they put together these, these, these panels and, and then seek input from various stakeholders, um, people who are knowledgeable on the subject, and they ultimately publish a consensus document. I'm not sure what that will look like or what that, you know, this is the first time we've, we've been involved in something like this, but, you know, we were fortunate enough to have some input into into that process because of the fact that we, you know, back in October of last year, we, we invited the FDA to come in and, and to tour our facility 
um, Julie Dome, the former agency lead on compounding, was here, and uh, her team was here. They 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 toured our place. She spoke. Um, it was a very informative talk. I think it was a well attended um, session. I think it was standing room only in there when she yeah. was speaking. You could hear a pin drop. People were very interested in hearing directly from the agency. I remember that. But but one of the side effects of or one of the side things that occurred because of that meeting is is that we had a chance to discuss these consensus studies with with them and they they were kind enough to um, uh, introduce us to uh, NASEM and uh, we, were, we we did provide some some input uh, some some information for them to evaluate and then we were also a part of um, speaking in front of their their expert panel which which happened yesterday and I can tell you that, that you know and this 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 bolsters what we spoke about earlier on this podcast, and that is the the need for data, the need for scientific evidence. And it just, it just I think, reinvigorated me personally to make sure that our teams are, are working very hard to, to be on the cutting edge because the, those types of panels, whenever you're, I guess, being challenged is, is, a, way to, is a way to put it, um, there's there's when you have a scientific panel that may be somewhat ignorant of the nuances of, of what you do when they're questioning everything that that, that you do and, and and how you do it um, you need to be prepared to have some really good solid answers and so the work that we've been doing uh, was tremendously helpful in being able to answer those questions and they had a lot of questions about supply chain where are these chemicals coming from you know how do you substantiate the quality of those chemicals um, and so, you know, there was an opportunity there to explain the supply chain and all the extra things that we do as a company. That the fact that there are specifications that fall outside of the of, of pharmacopeial uh, standards that that make a difference, and and the fact that we do those types of testing and on in on the chemicals themselves, and then also on the on the formulations. That's a whole area of. of, of that's probably 30 minutes worth of material just in, just to talk about that piece. But you want to um, come back and do it again? We could. Right. We absolutely could. Maybe, that, maybe we could uh, just keep going and let them keep talking. We'll save it for a rainy day. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So, so we had, it was, it was a good, to, to, to close that, that, that thought, it was, um, I think, ended up being um, pretty good in the end. As, as one could imagine, there were certainly individuals there that, that did not think that Compounded bioidentical hormone replacement therapy should play a role in in, uh, in the treatment of women, and and there were some really, really, I think, compelling, inspirational inputs from from doctors and and and, uh, and pharmacists on on why it should be around. So uh, we were happy to be a part of it. Wow, awesome, Gus. Probably the, probably the best way we could have ended it before extending into another episode. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come back and talk some more. We, we probably will take you up on that. Um, you spoke about so much. I, I, on behalf of not only our membership, um, the compounding community, thank you for what you've done to change the way that you know science is involved within our space and, and everything we do with formulations, clinical services, innovation, research and development. It's uh, it probably it doesn't get said enough, but your part in your world of PCCA is so tremendously important. And we only see you on stage every once in a while, whenever you want to release a product. Um, <laughs> we don't see you often enough. When yeah. are we going to see you next on stage? Yeah, we need, uh, we need no to pressure. See, we need to see you soon. We'll be on stage at International, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll have something new there. And I know it's probably the best time for individuals to get connected with you. And 
I know our advisory councils and other areas of our business will sometimes interact with you, but I think this gave our listeners out there a very new appreciation for who Gus Bassani is. Not only just a smooth voice, <laughs> so smooth. He's, he's almost so like smooth. a Spock of the of, of the PCCA. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, it. Gus, before we started recording, um, was pondering life if we walked around with a microphone and a headset because <laughs> I think he enjoyed his own voice so much. Oh yeah, yeah. Just it's a different. You're no AJ. It, no, but, um, no, definitely no. Not many people can have a none voice of us like are. AJ. Yeah, none he's none got of us are. perfect radio voice. But uh, it's interesting being able to to have these headphones on and then to to hear yourself. It's that's uh, a different experience. Well, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience to have you on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you for being here. This thank is you for having me, gentlemen. Um, a couple of things that Gus mentioned, obviously the fact that formulation science, um, innovation and R and D, um, is truly what the PCCA standard is defined by a new portion of our website also defined as a microsite will lead you into much more in terms of what Gus was discussing, much more of the background knowledge behind not only R and D, um, and the innovation that we bring to our bases, but also talking about supply chain. Gus also discussed where we buy our products and not only our chemicals that we resell, but also the excipients and products that go into our base production. Um, the complete PCCA standard could also be found at www.thepccastandard.com. It will also be found next to our USB 800 landing page that will help you give you more understanding of some of the changes to the marketplace as a result of USP 800. So highly encourage you to visit both of those two areas of our website. As always, please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and other social media channels. Uh, you can definitely find us, um, hopefully on this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to both this podcast as well as the blog. Uh, on behalf of Sebastian and I, thank you once again to Gus. Until next time, we'll see you soon.